Welcome to Christian Assembly, a family church. Since 1930, we've been serving the communities of Western Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia with the good news of Jesus Christ. With over 40 years of Bible teaching and ministry experience, Pastor Bill brings faith-filled revelation from God's Word. We believe with you, wherever you are, that God will inspire and change your life through the following teaching. For more information about Christian Assembly, follow us on social media or visit our website at cafamily.net. Praise God. Tonight, I want to continue Sunday morning's message on focus, key to faith. Focus, key to faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of studying your word together tonight. I thank you for every ear to be a listening ear, every heart to be an open heart, every mind to be an open mind. I thank you for utterance in the Holy Ghost to proclaim the truth of your word with power, penetrating our very souls and challenging us to rise up to higher places in you. To live out our salvation in a practical and positive and powerful way. That we might shine as lights in this world of darkness and hold forth the word of life to the generation that you've called us to. And Father, as you anoint us from on high, we'll be certain to speak as the oracle of God. To proclaim truth unto those that are lost and in need. That they might receive, dear Father God, the benefits of the covenant that you provided for us with the blood of Jesus Christ. Now I thank you. Right now, for all things, dear Father, to manifest in a glorious and powerful way, to your honor and glory, in Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Praise God. Just a quick review from some of the things we talked about uh, this past Sunday morning. Faith, we said, is all important to the life of the believer. Why? Because without faith, the gospel message benefits no one. And without faith, we won't be able to inherit the promises of God. These are found in the book of Hebrews. Without faith, we know that we can't live right, for the just shall live by faith. And without faith, we can't please God. That's impossible without faith. Also, we're not going to receive the things that belong to us without faith, because James made that very clear. Ask in faith without wavering if you want to receive what is yours in Christ. Now, knowing the importance of faith, and there are many more verses of Scripture that talk about the importance of faith, Satan will target the faith life of any child of God and every child of God because it's faith he knows that will demolish his works in the earth and as Jesus told this to Peter saying to Peter Satan has desired to have you to sift you like wheat but Jesus prayed for his faith not to fail notice it would be a faith failure of course we know that Peter did fail in his faith he said he would not in any way ever reject Christ but what did he do when he was tempted and challenged we we're told that he denied him three times. Remember, sifting means he's trying to find out if you really mean what you're saying. Your words are your faith speaking. He wants to know if you really mean it. He doesn't really know, so he puts the pressure on you. And that's what he did to Peter, and Peter faltered. But Jesus prayed that his faith fail not. And we know from that point on, Peter was very strong in faith. Also, it's important to understand this. The key to walking in the kind of faith that he wants us to experience is focus. What is it that we're focusing on? Because if we focus on the wrong thing, then we're not going to experience the right thing. And when it comes to focus, let me just share this with you. If your focus is on everything you see on TV right now about COVID-19, 
and all you're hearing is negativity, you're going to be bound by fear. Sometimes just let it go. Believe God. Listen to what God has to say in His Word. Believe the promises of God. Get a hold of Psalm 91. Read it over to yourself every single day. And believe that God can and will protect you no matter what it is that you face in this life. If number one, we're looking to reasoning, our faith is going to falter. Logic and reasoning, we understand are necessary. But if that's all we're looking at, we could miss out on rising up in our faith in God. Number two, we talked about if all we focus on is what is seen, then once again, the things that we see can destroy our faith and bring it down low. If it's um, guilt and condemnation, based on maybe past mistakes that we've done and committed in our lives, and that's exactly what the enemy wanted us to focus on, our faith will be debilitated. When it comes to negative advice, people say things and they mean well when they say them, but if it's not in line with the Word of God, that negative advice can pan out in such a way that we're filled with doubt and unbelief and fear and worry. When it comes to satanic strategies, remember the wiles of the devil? Remember Ananias and Sapphira? Satan dropped within their heart to do it his way, not God's way. It was to their demise. Their faith didn't hold up. And what happened? They were judged and they died. Then we've got worldly pursuits that will tear away at our faith life. The lust of the eyes, flesh and pride of life, the care of this world, the lust for other things and deceitfulness of riches. If that's all we're going to invest in, our faith life will not be a strong one. And finally, we talked about if our focus is on our emotional feelings. We're emotional beings and we understand that. But if we allow fear, anxiety, worry, and fretting to dominate our lives, then our faith is going to be pushed aside. We're not going to be strong in faith. So it's important that we remember that and rise up above it. And then we talked about, finally, in our review, levels of faith. The apostles started out with no faith when they were in the first storm. Then they graduated to a little faith when Peter walked on the water. And then we saw two non-Jews experience and demonstrate great faith. The Syrophoenician woman and the Roman centurion. So we could see that faith can rise, it can grow and develop. The only one that we're told of who walked in perfect faith was Abraham when he offered up Isaac on the Mount of Sacrifice. And so with that said and understood, let's talk a little bit more now how we can focus on growing our faith. I want to continue in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6, a very important scripture. One time I shared this from the pulpit and a couple came after me and afterwards and said, I never understood that scripture. I never saw that verse of scripture. Man, it meant so much to me. And here it is. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision, which means you're Jewish, availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, which means you're a Gentile, but faith, notice, which worketh by love. What really is important, what really is something to behold, is if you're a Jew or a Gentile and you come to Christ, it's not because of your Jewish heritage, not because that you're a Gentile and all that you bring with your culture. It's you become a new creature in Christ Jesus. It's your faith working by love that is absolutely essential. And that's what avails everything. So we want to go along that line. Why? Because without understanding how to live in and walk in the realm of love, our faith life will struggle. We're not going to rise up where we need to be. If you recall, when Jesus was here upon the earth, in Matthew 14, 14, we see that everything he did was motivated by compassion for hurting people. 
Let's read Matthew 14, 14. That makes it very clear. Jesus went forth. He saw a great multitude. He was moved with compassion toward them and he healed their sick. What does it mean to have compassion? It is sympathy toward the suffering of another coupled with a yearning, burning, longing desire to alleviate the suffering. What does that tell us? That Jesus was love personified. His compassion was overwhelming toward hurting people. He had the power gone in his life and he was ever willing and yearning to use it to alleviate human suffering. That's what moved him. That's what motivated him. And since he was the perfect will of God and personified, we know that's the heart of the Father as well. And so it's important we understand that. Being motivated by love is really everything each and every one of us should consider in our lives. Now, is Jesus any less compassionate today than he, as he was when he walked upon this earth? Absolutely not. Just as loving, just as compassionate, just as caring as he was when he walked here. Well, when it comes to walking in a higher level of faith, we need to understand how much God loves us and how he expects us to also walk in that same realm of love. And so that's exactly what we want to explore this evening. Let's begin with number one when, when it comes to understanding love. Number one is understanding this. God loves each and every one of us. And to understand his love for us is what gives our faith a tremendous boost. The best example I can give to you is like this. When a child has trust in his father because or mother because he knows that that father or mother is going to be there for them, they'll do anything. Even jump off the side of a swimming pool into deep water knowing dad or mom is going to catch me. That child knows that love is there. When you and I know how much God loves us, we can step off the boat like Peter did, walk on the water knowing beneath us are his everlasting arms. Why? Because we have an understanding of his great love for us. Let's look in scriptures and see what they say. Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 17 is a very powerful scripture when it comes to understanding God's love for me, God's love for you. What does it say? The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. We don't doubt that. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. That's over you and that's over me. He will rest, here it is, in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. What a powerful scripture. Resting in his love and joying over us with singing. Imagine that. God Almighty singing over you with joy because you're his child. But notice the expression that says he'll rest in his love. What does that mean? It means that he has exhausted his love. He has poured it out unto death. He has absolutely depleted it. He used every part of it. It was the greatest working of his power that he wrought in Christ when he set his love upon you and me. In other words, he had no more to give. No other resource. All his love was poured out for you and for me. And now he's resting in it. Why is he resting in it? He knew it would attract people like you and like me. And that you would come to him. Why? Because you see how much he loves you. Based on that verse of scripture, we understand that this love that he has for us was demonstrated through his son Jesus. And I want to show that to you in the book of Romans chapter 5. Notice here in verse 8. But God commendeth or introduced his love toward us. Notice this, it's his love toward us. In that 
while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Notice it doesn't say that he demonstrated his love for us by doing this for us, doing that for us, getting us a job, healing our body, providing this, providing that, meeting a financial need, finding us a mate, etc. No, his love for us is not found in other things. This is where his love for us as individuals is found. That he sent his son to die for us, and that is exactly how he demonstrated or introduced us to his awesome love. And notice when he did it. While we were yet sinners. Not while we were loving him, obeying him, serving him, surrendering to him. While we were yet sinners. Sinning against him. Not walking with him. Not honoring him. Not surrendering to him. He sent his son to lay down his life to die for us, to show us or demonstrate to us his great love for us. And so anyone that says, if God really loved me, he would do this, he would do that. No, God really loved you beyond anything you and I can imagine. And he proved it by sending his son to die for us while we were his enemies. Amazing verse. Look at this other one. In the book of John, chapter 15, verse 13, these are the words of our Savior himself. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. In other words, this is the epitome of love. It can't get any better than this. Jesus laid down his life for his friends. What does that mean? Jesus had no more to give. As he lived here upon this earth, he in the flesh represented the second Adam. He came, robed himself in flesh, to walk upon this earth for a specific reason. And that is to pour out himself as an offering for all of us. And that was love in great demonstration. Why? What can you give to somebody else? Maybe you can give all your resources. Your house you can give away. Your car you can give away. Your money you can give away. Other resources that you might have. You can give away to say, I'm doing this to tell you that I love you. You can give someone flowers. You can buy someone a shirt, a suit, a tie, and the list goes on and on. But when you lay down your life and you're gone, you poured yourself out completely, you're not even here to look at the smile on their face to see if they really appreciated what you did for them. Jesus laid down his life. But like anyone else, he rose from the dead on the third day and he came back to the ones that he laid down his life for and said see I told you I love you he demonstrated it he poured it out and said these words there's no greater love than this there's nothing more that you can give than yourself completely and that's what he did and then look at John 16 and verse 27 another wonderful verse of scripture it says for the father himself loves you because you're such a good person no it's not based on your performance. It's based on your faith. For the Father himself loves you. Why? Because you have loved me and have believed that I came out from God. So in other words, because you believe in, in Jesus and because you love Jesus, man, the Father's love is all over you and me. Wonderful verse of Scripture. You should say to yourself over and over again, Father, you really love me. You really love me not because of what I've done or what I haven't done, but you love me because I believe in your son. I believe in Jesus. And so therefore I love him and I know you love me. Now notice this. 
It's not based on our performance. It's based on his performance. Look at 1 John 4 and verse 19. Another wonderful verse of scripture. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. He's the one that set this love plan into motion. He's the one who loved the world and he gave his only begotten son. When the world was denying him. But praise God, we can love him back because he first loved us. We should never challenge his love for us no matter what we go through in this life. And then look at uh, Matthew chapter 7 and look at verses 7 through 11. Very, very powerful verses of scripture that we should all embrace. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. For everyone that asks receives. He that seeks finds. And to him that knocks it shall be opened to him. Or what man is there among you? If his son should ask bread, would he give him a stone? Or a fish, would he give him a serpent? Or what else? Anything. If you then being evil natural people. If you know how to give good gifts to your children. Notice these next three words. They should be so impacting to all of our lives. Especially if you're out there and you're a father, you're a mother. And you absolutely love your children. How much more? Shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask Him? According to what Jesus said, there's no other way it can happen. If you ask Him for anything, because of His love for you, of course, it's according to His will, you're going to get it. Because His love for us is greater than any earthly father or any earthly mother. Now, notice in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 18, because this is really what solidifies in all of our minds, all of our thinking, how we can understand God's love for us. It's a love that passes understanding, but it can be understood in four particular ways. Notice this. May be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height. goes on to say to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. The breadth, the length, the depth, and the height of God's love. The breadth of God's love is seen in the incarnation when he sent his son. The length of God's love, to what length would he go? He loves the world and he sent his son. The breadth of it covers the entire world. The length of it covers him sending his son. The depth covers his sacrifice and becoming sin for us. And the height of it basically covers his raising us up from the dead to be seated with him on high. So these particular four events revealed to us the depth, the length, the breadth, the height of God's love that we need to understand why so that we are filled with all the fullness of God. You think if you're filled with all the fullness of God, you'll have a strong faith? There's no doubt in my mind. But that is true. So it's an important fact that we understand that nothing in this world can separate us from the love of God because he's resting in it. If you go to the book of Romans in chapter 1, or chapter 8 and verse 1, you discover this. There's no condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus. But if you go to the very end of the chapter, it says there's no separation from his love either. And so you see, as you read that passage of scripture and put them together, Man, there's no condemnation. There's nothing. It's not based on what you can do or I can do. It's based on what he has done. And there's no separation unless you just walk away from it yourself. So it's important to understand if you want to have a strong faith life, God loves me. Say it out. Man, God, you love me so much and I see it now. 
It's not based on any performance of mine. It's not based on any circumstance in life. It's based on the decision that you made to love me in Christ. The only way I could be loved completely. Thank you for that. Number two is our love for God. Once again, contributes to a strong life of faith. Look at the book of Psalms, chapter 91. Uh, Psalm 91, beginning at verse 14. Notice this is a reason revealed to us. Because he hath set his love upon me. Now, it's up to us to set our love upon him. What will he do? Deliver them. Set him on high because he knows my name. When he calls upon me, I'll answer him. I'll be with him in trouble and deliver him. And with long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Notice this. We set our love now back on him. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. And so now I place my love on him. I fix my love on him. I set my love on him. You say, what does that look like? Well, John's gospel, chapter 14, Jesus answered that question clearly. Here's what he said in John 14, 21 through 24. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. He that loveth me shall be loved to my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas said to him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, if a man love me, he will keep my words and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode, our dwelling place with him. He that loves me not keeps not my sayings and the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's which sent me. What's he saying? We prove our love for him by finding out what his word says about how we should live. And acting accordingly. That's the one who loves me, he says. And so when we set our love upon him, who do all those wonderful things for us. Look at Mark's gospel, chapter 12. It really involves giving ourselves completely and totally to God in love. Here's Jesus speaking, and he says this. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy, notice his heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. Notice those four areas. With all your heart. God wants our hearts. He wants us to give him our heart. This is what Christianity is all about. It's not about being religious. Not about being in a church service. He wants our heart. The very life that we have on the inside. Our spirit he's talking about. Give him your heart and become his child. Love him from your heart. He wants our soul. Our soul is comprised of the mind, will, emotions, and intellect. Our emotions are not to dictate to our lives. He wants us to have them under control by the power of His Holy Spirit. We're going to love Him emotionally as well as spiritually. Emotionally, not just meaning emotionalism that's in excess, hanging from chandeliers and rolling around the floor. That's not emotional worship. Truly coming from the heart. From the heart that spills over to the soul, that we truly identify with Him, who He is and what He's done for us, and brings us to a place of true emotional feelings toward Him. Just like you would a spouse, for example. You just love Him. I'll never forget Brother uh, Priscilla, pastor of the church here before me for 40 years, and his love for God and his love for the Word was unmatched. Oftentimes I would leave my place and walk to where he was at, go to his house and see him on the porch sitting there with his Bible open and he would just embrace it 
bring it up to his lips and kiss it. And he would say, your words are more to me than honey upon my lips. And then he would just hug the Bible and just say, good, good, good. You could see his love for God and the things of God absolutely pouring out of him, your soul. But then your mind, when it talks about the mind, it's talking about decisions that we make that are based upon the teachings of God's word. Making right choices, making right decisions. For example, if the scripture says, don't be unequally yoked together with a non-believer, then what do we do? Let our emotions take us down a wrong path? Or do we make decisions based on the way God thinks? God says, don't do that. So I'm not going to do that because he said not to do it. Now, my feelings might want to do it, but I'm not going to do it in obedience to God. So now I've loved him from the heart with my emotions and my decision. A decision that I made with a mind that's renewed to the word of God. And then finally it says, with our flesh. And what does he mean by that? We've been told to crucify the flesh. Put it under. Put it to death. Don't allow it to live the way it wants to live. Deny yourself, Jesus said. Take up your cross, submit your will to me, and follow me. So what's he talking about? As long as we're living in this body, we are his temple, and we want to use it to his honor and to his glory. Let our hands be his hands. Let our feet be his feet. Let our words be his words, our speech his speech. So in other words, we're loving him in spirit, soul, mind, and our flesh, our body. That's loving God. That's serving Him. Number three, love for self. And this is so important. Go back to Mark 12 and look at verse 31. We understand God's love for us. And we understand our need to love God. Now, love yourself. And the second is like, namely this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. Notice that first of all, he talks about loving yourself before we talk about your neighbor. Loving yourself. Well, how do I love myself? We've got to remember something. Our mind is a control tower of our lives. Our thinking is what controls our lives. Our relationships with God, with others, with family, with friends, work associates, and so on. How we think will determine whether or not we succeed or we fail in the things of life. You see, it all starts up here. Success starts with a thought in the mind. Failure starts with a thought in the mind. So it's important that we recognize this fact, that the mind is the control tower of our lives. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So what you think about yourself, what I think about myself, will determine whether or not we succeed or we fail in the things of God and in life. I want you to notice something here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and also chapter 11. Let's look at these two verses first, and then I want to comment. Look at chapter 4. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid from them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded, notice, the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. What is the devil doing here to these non-believers? Blinding their mind. Look at the next verse. 
chapter 11. Keep that in mind. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve, he's writing to believers now, through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So what is he trying to communicate? Those that are lost have their minds blinded. They don't know they need salvation. Those that are saved have their minds deceived by the wicked one. Deceived into thinking things that are wrong, that are not absolutely true. You see, when it comes to the lost, we need to pray that their eyes would be open, that their minds would be open to the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that it would shine upon their hearts and minds so they can see their need for salvation. When I was lost, I didn't know I needed saved. But the light came and I understood I need saved. I changed my way of thinking. Now, as a saved person, I used to think some things that were wrong. I didn't know that. Why? Because my mind wasn't renewed to the Word of God yet. So I was deceived in certain areas of my life. But once I found out what the Word said, I was no longer deceived. Satan will use his subtlety to deceive people into thinking that this is the better road. That's the better road. This is the better way. That's the better way. And you know what? It's not. That's deception. Go back to Eve in the very beginning. Look at that tree. Man, it's beautiful. It's going to make you wise. There's something more that you can have. Follow that path for your life. And what did she do? She thought about it. She was deceived into thinking that it was true and to be exalted above what God's thoughts were for her and her husband. And she went ahead and did it. And what happened? She fell. Mankind fell. Creating the dilemma that we're in right here and right now. Satan will use our past sins, our faults, our failures, our mistakes, our shortcomings, inadequacies, and that sort of thing to get us to think about those things. And it starts when you're a young person. Maybe someone told you, you're not going to amount to anything. You're a failure. You're never going to have a good life. And the list goes on and on and on. Even in high school, this one should succeed. That one's not going to succeed. And you hear this all through your life. You know what's important? Not what people think about us but what God thinks about us. And it's important we start thinking who we are in Christ. Because you see, we're not in ourselves. We've been bought with the blood. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to Him. He wants us to see ourselves as He sees us, as He made us. We are His new creations. We are His masterpiece in Christ Jesus. We're His work of magnificent skill and ability. It took the blood of His Son in order to create in us who we are, a new creature, a new creation, a son, a daughter of the Most High God, more than a conqueror, an heir of God, a joint heir with Jesus. And the list goes on and on. The righteousness of God in Christ, not a sinner saved by grace, a sinner who was saved by grace. And now the righteousness of God in Christ. God wants us to think of ourselves. You say, but I made so many mistakes. We all have. And the devil will point them out to us to deceive us into thinking that we can never rise up above those mistakes. But you know what? We can. If we just believe and start thinking the way God wants us to think. Stop thinking you're unworthy because he made you worthy. Stop belittling yourself when he has exalted you and lifted you up. As a matter of fact, I wrote down some questions we can ask ourselves about how we think about and should think about ourselves. Some things that we could possibly use in the future to control our thoughts. Number one, where are these thoughts coming from? When you hear something like, you're not going to amount to anything, where is that thought coming from? Did someone say it in your past? Or is the enemy just injecting it into your thought life? Is it because maybe you failed in this one area of your life? 
Where did it come from? Identify it. Recognize it. I don't believe that God would ever speak to you and say you're a failure. You're never going to make it through life. You'll never succeed. So answer the question for yourself. Where did the thought come from? Number two, where will these thoughts lead me? What path will I take if I submit to those thoughts? What's at the end of the road? There's a way that thinks, that man thinks, thinks is right to him. But the end thereof is the way of death. There's a way that seems right to a man. It seems like it's the right path to take. I think I should take that path. But what happens at the end of it all? Nothing but death, turmoil, and evil. So, number one, where's the thought coming from? Number two, where's it going to lead me? Do I really want what's at the end of that road? And then number three, will they get me where I desire to go? What is it that I'm desiring in my life? What's the outcome that I'm looking for? Do I want to succeed? Do I want to overcome? Do I want to be victorious? Well, what am I thinking? Am I thinking, if I want all that, this is the path I should take. I should go to school and get an education. I should go to Bible school and get an education. I should do this. I should do that. I'm going to seek the face of God and see what He says. I know He's a plan for my life, for good, not for evil, to give me a future and to give me a hope. That's the thought I should take and embrace. Number four, is my thought or are my thoughts biblically acceptable and biblically based? Is it right? If it's not, cast down every thought and imagination that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. But ask yourself the question, is that biblically acceptable that I should follow through with that? And if it's not, Get rid of it. Cast it out. Reject it. That's not what I'm going to do. Next, will it build me up or will it tear me down? Words are powerful containers of life and death. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And whatever we submit ourselves to listen to is going to affect and impact our lives and our thinking. If all we do is sit in front of the TV and listen to all the horror stories about COVID-19... You're going to be filled with fear, worry, anxiety, doubt, unbelief. And you'll be a nervous wreck. Besides, there's nothing you can do as far as in the natural out there to deal with it. You can take some precautionary measures like we all have been doing. But ultimately, our eyes should be upon the living God. He said, I will deliver you. He said, I will lift you up on high. He said, no weapon formed against you will prosper. He said, no plague can nigh your dwelling. Let a thousand fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come nigh unto me. What if we sat down in front of a TV and heard that verse over and over and over and over and over again until it began to dominate the way we think? Those powerful words will impact our lives in such a way that you'll rise up like David did and said, in faith, my God will deliver you into my hand. But if all we do is dominate ourselves with what we're hearing out there in this world that we live in, we'll be full of fear, anxiety, worry. Next, do they produce guilt and condemnation? If those thoughts that we're thinking produce guilt and condemnation, you've got to get them out. That's a horrible road to be on. Everybody falls short, and we know that. Everybody misses the mark, and we know that. Everybody sins, and we know that. But we're not 
to be dominated by condemnation or guilt. Why? Because there's none in Christ when you walk in the Spirit. And remember, no condemnation means no separation from the love of God. That's exactly what the enemy wants to do. Separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it's not your performance or mine. If we've missed the mark, get it under the blood. Confess your sin. He's faithful and just to forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So praise God for that. Next, do they fit who I am as a Christian? Do those thoughts fit who I am as a Christian? Hey, Bobby, go over there and steal that pack of gum from the drugstore. Put on your mask. Well, today it would be obvious to do that. But put on your mask and go take that piece of gum or pack of gum. Is that fitting to your Christian experience, to your walk with the Lord? Or do this or do that. Pull a prank on this one and it's a damaging one. Don't do that. Those thoughts need to be cast down and removed from our lives. Why? They'll take us down a wrong path and weaken our faith in God. So answer those questions before you act. Think, in other words, before you act. Because every thought is going to produce an action in our lives eventually. And we'll become what we think. So it's important to realize that. And then finally, number four, our love for others. Look in John's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 34, a revelation of Jesus raising the bar when it comes to loving other people. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. Now remember, under the Old Covenant, he says, as you love yourself, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Here he says, now, as I have loved you, that you love one another. He raises the bar almost to a place that you kind of wonder, is that even attainable? That I love others the way you love me? What a tall mandate for every single one of us really to consider. We're to love each other as he himself loved us. Well, in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, let's get a glimpse as to how much he loved us. Ready for it? Let's do it. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace are you saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What's that saying? He took us from the lowest position possible. And raised us to the highest position available. We were down here in the miry clay. He didn't just raise us up and say, I brushed you off a little bit and now you're, you're okay, you're an okay person. He raised us up and made us sit together with him in high places. What does that say about our relationships? There might be people that we consider they're way down there on the list. But Jesus said, I found those people. And I raised them up. And you're one of them. And so am I. Wow. Think about that mandate. And look at this one in Matthew chapter 5. If you doubt what I'm saying to be true. The words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Very clear. But I say unto you. Love your enemies. Before this he said an eye for an eye. A tooth for a tooth. And so on. But he says. But I'm saying to you. That's what the law said. But I'm saying to you. Love your enemies. Bless them 
that curse you. Speak well of those, in other words, that speak evil of you. That's contrary to human reason and logic. Do good to them that hate you. Someone hates you, do good to them. Bake them a cake or a pizza. And pray for them which despitefully use you. Pray for them. And persecute you. Why should I do any of that? That you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, mature, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect or mature. Here we have a revelation of a love that challenges each and every one of us. You can love your spouse. You can love your children. You can love church members. You can love other people that are in the world, especially when they love you. He's talking about people that absolutely abuse you, persecute you, come against you, berate you, belittle you, speak evil of you, and so on. And he says, do good to them. Pray for them. Bless them. Wow. Why? That you may be mature. When we mature in love, our faith level is already there. It rises up high. You see, we need to have a better perspective. Every human life is valuable to the Lord. They may be mean to you or me, but they're valuable to Him. And in any way we possibly can, we're to reach out to them, to bring them up out of the miry clay that we've been brought up out of, and get them positioned in Christ as Savior and Lord. Look at 1 John chapter 4 and verse 18. Especially at a time like this and what we're going through. There is no fear in love. But perfect love, what did he just say? Perfect love is loving your enemy as well as others. Cast out all fear. Because fear has torment. He that fears is not made perfect in love. What a powerful verse. You know why? Because when we're made perfect in love, there is no fear. Where there is no fear, there's perfect faith. So, what is love all about? Knowing how much God loves me. Setting my love upon God. Loving myself as He loved me. And then loving others, including my enemies. And perfect love will cast out all fear and leave nothing but strong faith. Let's close with this verse of Scripture in Romans chapter 5. It's important. Romans chapter 5, verse 5. And hope maketh not a shame. Why? Because the love of God. This is the divine agape love of God. That's based on principle and decision, not feeling and emotion. Principle and decision. God says, I put my love on you no matter how I feel. It's a decision that I made to love you. It's the principle. Because the love of God is shed abroad where? In our hearts. By the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. What does that mean? When we got saved, the Holy Ghost came in and just got a hold of the love of God and it absolutely just burst up all through our being. It became alive, an active, powerful force. 
This divine love of God is in every single one of us. We have it on the inside of us. And you know what? The Holy Ghost will help us develop it. He sure will if we just yield to Him and say, Here I am. Holy Spirit of God, help me to mature in God's love for me. Think about it. How much my Father loves me, help me mature in that. My love for others, my love for myself, and my loving God, help me. Help me to let this love reign and rule in my heart. Hallelujah. And guess what? Faith won't be an issue. It'll be there. You'll be like Jesus, walking in compassion towards those that hurt, with a desire to alleviate their suffering, and let it flow through you and touch their heart and touch their life. Wouldn't that be wonderful if we all could achieve that goal of rising up and walking in love? Father, thank you. Thank you for the love of God that's in our hearts by your Spirit. Not a feeling, not an emotion, but a principle and a decision by which we live. That no matter how people wrong us, what they do against us, we rise up above it with the clear understanding that that lost soul needs Christ and that we'll still do good to them, pray for them, bless them in an effort to bring them into your family. Give us the spiritual fortitude that we need to rise up above our feelings and emotions and be weaned from them looking at the greater cause of leading many others to Christ help us even in our families and friendships to love the way you loved us to honor you in doing so that we would make decisions that would be based on your thoughts and will and not our own Father, we believe we receive that divine enablement and empowerment by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.